Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, January 4th, 2018, and I am your host, Politico magazine reporter Tim Alberta, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. For our first podcast in 2018, we've got a lot on the agenda. We'll be discussing the frayed relationship between President Trump and Steve Bannon. That relationship came to a head this week when a book excerpt was released, and it was not pretty. That was quickly followed by a scathing statement from President Trump blasting Bannon. We'll also be discussing Utah Senator Orrin Hatch's retirement and what that means for Trump. Hint, it's bringing another rival to Washington, D.C., most likely Mitt Romney. Plus, we'll dive into the Iranian anti-government protests and the White House's response. And to close the show, we'll talk about my own piece, surprise, surprise, on how the Trump presidency drove a wedge between a two-decades-long friendship between Senator Jeff Flake and Vice President Mike Pence. But before we get started, a reminder, please subscribe to the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite listening app. Please rate us and write that written review. Today, we are joined by Senior Politics Editor Charlie Matezian. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Tim. And White House reporter Andrew Restucia. Hi, Andrew. Hey, first time around the program. Yeah, first time. How excited are you? Scale of one to ten. A full ten, I'd say. Had a boy. How about you? How excited are you to be hosting for the first time? Um, you feel the pressure? A lot of pressure, actually. Although Scott needs to look up Wally Pip in the sports dictionary because <laughs> he's in trouble. Scotty, we love you. We hope you have a great couple of months with your little boy, Sam. Let's jump right into this. Our first data point today is 266, and that is the total number of words in President Donald Trump's official statement responding to Steve Bannon's fiery, controversial quotes in the forthcoming book by Michael Wolff. And before we get to that, let's just go back earlier in the week and recap all that has kicked off 2018. We had a series of tweets from the president railing against Huma Abedin, North Korea, talking about the size of his nuclear button, and wanting to award uh, media representatives uh, for fake news awards of the year and uh, singling out the New York Times, among others. It sort of snowballed from there. And of course, on Wednesday, all hell broke loose with that book excerpt. Andrew, break all this down for us. Uh, what did the first week of the year accomplish for this White House, and where are we now? Um, you know, it's a pretty spectacular fall from grace for for Steve Bannon. I mean, he was, uh, you know, up until the last few months, one of the most influential uh, advisors to the president, um, and even in the campaign. And now you're basically having the president put out this lengthy statement that says he it literally says that he lost his mind. Um, he was ranting to um, his own advisors in the White House uh, that, that that Bannon is not well. Um, even for this White House, it was a crazy day yesterday. Yeah, I mean, this statement was was remarkable, not just because it represented a historic pub- historically public falling out with a top aide, but it was remarkable for its venom. Uh, if you just deconstruct it line by line, uh, I mean, it, it's from, it's amazing the way he attempts to diminish and mock and ultimately eviscerate uh, Bannon, despite Bannon's role uh, in his campaign. And, you know, I can't imagine there's many examples out there if 
any, uh, of a president issuing a statement like that that so ferociously attacks a single individual, let alone someone who helped him get elected. And and, and I think it suggests that um, 2018 is, is going to look a lot like 2017, where we have, you know, there's not going to be a pivot. We keep expecting the, pev- the pivot, you know, uh, less and less. But, you know, it, 2018 is going to look a lot like 2017 with a highly unstable White House wrapped in drama led by a mercurial president who's learned nothing from the experience of his first year and, in fact, is only going to validate uh, the most unflattering portrayals of him from the Michael Wolff book, you know, from the nar- narcissism to the thin skin to the chaotic environment. And, you know, forget about a prospect of return to normalcy in 2018. It's just going to be the same old. And it's worth noting, of course, that this comes directly on the heels of a holiday season in which Republicans were feeling really good. They left town feeling really good about getting tax reform over the finish line. They had something to go home and talk to their constituents about. They feel like they were on the same page with the president and the Republican leadership. And here we are starting off 2018, not with a bang, but with a thud, with a, with a really unprecedented thud. Andrew, you're really well sourced in the White House. What does this do to the morale over there for people who felt like they were entering the new year kind of with a blank slate? You know, I think it revives this longstanding sense of um, paranoia in the White House, first of all, because it wasn't, let's, let's not forget, it wasn't just Steve Bannon that talked to uh, Michael Wolf for this book. Um, apparently, Katie Walsh, the former deputy chief of staff, also uh, talked to, uh, to to Mr. Wolf, though she, though she denies several of the on-the-record quotes. Um, so it's sort of reviving this frustration in the White House about the sort of RNC Priebus wing and are they out to get the president? Are they leaking? You know, and, and, and you know, obviously Katie Walsh has been accused of leaking for months. Um, so I think you're going to see a shift, not only uh, a shift away from just criticizing Bannon to these other people that were that are in the book. And I talked to a White House person late last night who said that, you know, everyone in the White House is literally going through the index trying to trying to see if they were mentioned. <laughs> and, and, you know, the person that I talked to wasn't mentioned and sort of had a sigh of relief that he, that, that, he, that the person wasn't in there. Usually it's the other way around in D.C., right? right. People people go to the index <laughs> waiting to see their name. So let's wrap it up on this point uh, specific to Bannon and, and all that's gone on this week. It seems as though, Charlie, we've seen a, a series of increasingly volatile incidents involving Bannon uh, going back to his days in the White House, but then after leaving, of course. And it seems like this was the one time that he maybe got too far over his skis, mentioning Don Jr., seeming to go after the family a little bit, and then, of course, using the word treasonous. This seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. What does it do to Bannon's relationship with the conservative movement, with the Republican Party, and with the White House moving forward from here? Well, I mean, I... I Despite the, the the anger and the rage in that statement directed towards Bannon, uh, I, I wouldn't rule out the fact that Trump maybe he gets back in Trump's good graces. You know, we we've seen that aspect of, of Trump's personality again. But but I think you're right. It's it's really important to note that the reason he got that reaction was he was treading on, in, in, on terrain that he knew was dangerous to begin with. Meaning he can't ever seem to uh, overshadow Donald Trump, and when you do, you're going to get slapped down. But what he did was he he did that. But he went one step beyond and went after the president's family, you know, belittling, uh, you know, the, the Jared and, and Ivanka. You know, he clearly didn't view them as serious people and belittling them as privileged uh, policy dilettantes and, you know, mocking Don Jr. And then using the word, you know, treasonous. I mean, obviously, that set set off Trump. And, uh, you know, what does that mean going forward for their relationship and for Bannon in particular? I mean, you're already beginning to see that people are choosing sides. Uh, the candidates who Bannon has supported now are forced to choose sides and they're choosing the president and saying that, you know, they're with the president, not not Steve Bannon, which is what you might expect. I mean, the president ha- holds all the cards here and has all the power. And I think your point about 
uh, Trump and his potential willingness to uh, get back together with Bannon is important because if you think about Trump's history, we all talk a lot about him holding grudges, but look, for example, at his relationship with Mitt Romney, who was so critical of him during the campaign. He's considered Romney for Secretary of State, which provides us an excellent segue into another portion of this segment, which is Orrin Hatch retiring from the Senate this week, as announced, and Mitt Romney, the clear and overwhelming favorite for that Senate seat if he is to run. And in fact, it sounds for all the world like he is, in fact, going to run. Charlie, stick with you for a minute. What does this mean for the Senate? What does it mean for Romney? What does it mean for the Republican Party? And really, for the Trump-Romney relationship, which has been in- incredibly volatile over the last several years. It, to me, this is the actually one of the most fascinating aspects of this week is the Hatch retirement. Now, the, you know, the Hatch retirement doesn't change the math or won't change the math of the Senate. Since we're talking about Utah here, obviously it's uh, nearly certain to remain in Republican hands, that seat. Um, as far as the Senate goes, it means the, the fi- Senate Finance Committee, will, the powerful Senate Finance Committee will get a new chairman. But I don't think it will have that much impact on the Senate as an institution because, to me, Hatch's best work as a legislator is behind him. I mean, he sure, he helped see the tax cut bill to fruition. Uh, but I'd argue that he really hasn't covered himself with distinction or glory in his final term. And I mean, since 2012, uh, and especially during the Trump era, uh, I think he was a different kind of legislator in uh, his earlier terms. I mean, remember, he was elected in 1976 and has been in many ways a huge presence in that chamber. But, you know, his final term, he's in his 80s now, and whether it's a function of age or or something else, uh, I, I don't think he uh, has really, again, covered himself in glory in, in the final years. But here's where his departure makes a huge difference, and, and this is going to be fascinating to watch. It's hard to envision a scenario in which Mitt Romney doesn't run for and win that seat. You know, even though he's never held office in Utah, uh, he's like a favorite son there. It's almost as, as if, you know, Carson Wentz ran for mayor of Philadelphia. You know, that's what it's going to be like when, when, when Mitt runs. Uh, I mean, remember, he won over 70% of the vote in, in his losing bid against Barack Obama in 2012. Uh, and when he gets to Washington, he is going to drive Trump nuts. Uh, it's going to prove totally maddening to the president because, you know, as you mentioned, they have a famously chilly relationship and Romney has been uh, extremely critical in the past. But Romney isn't going to be like any freshman lawmaker that we've seen in the past. He's going to have stature. He's going to have clout that you typically would not have. And I have a feeling that you're going to see Romney in uh, near or full Bullworth mode. And uh, in part because he's going to look at this as his final mission and because he has nothing left to lose. He doesn't have to worry about anything anymore. What, he's in the 70s now? I mean, he is not going to cut back. He is going to see this as uh, his his final uh, service and, and, and duty to his country. Unlike his colleagues, he's going to be free to uh, let loose and f- uh, buck Trump at will. And he's going to arrive in the Senate with no debts to Trump. And he will be re- representing. And this is the important thing people need to keep in mind. It's not just that he uh, has the clout as, and, and stature as a former nominee. He will be coming from a state that – w- the rare conservative state that looks at Trump with suspicion. I mean, people forget. And Hatch, you know, I thought this was the the oddest part about Trump's relationship with Hatch and Hatch's uh, relationship with Trump. People often overlook the fact that of the conservative states, Utah was probably the one that was most hostile to Donald Trump. Trump, I don't even think, won a majority of the vote there. The vote was split three ways, in part because of all the LDS suspicion and uh, with Donald Trump. They just never really embra- – uh, Mormons never really embraced Donald Trump. And so this is a, an environment 
where Trump doesn't get the same kind of benefit of the doubt as he does across the South in places like Alabama uh, or Mississippi or some of the other places where he's really popular. So, so uh, in a lot of ways, Romney is going to be incentivized to just cut loose and become a, a huge thorn in Trump's side. I think there are two fascinating elements about this, Andrew. First, the idea of pairing Mike Lee with Mitt Romney from the Utah delegation, two guys who are broadly speaking – Republicans, but two very different kinds of Republicans. Lee, a sort of libertarian-leaning Tea Party, constitutionalist, conservative. Romney, uh, aside from his self-defined, severely conservative years uh, when running for the presidency in 2012, a guy who has always been sort of a center-right, chamber of commerce, pragmatic, moderate Republican governing wing of the Republican Party. To pair those two will be fascinating. But moreover, to Charlie's point, the parallel I see here is just as Donald Trump is ridding himself of Jeff Flake, who has been a thorn in his side, constantly tweeting and talking to reporters about things that the president has done that are beneath the dignity of the office, et cetera, et cetera, here comes Romney. And here comes Romney not just as a freshman with a six-year term in front of him, but here comes Romney from a state where he will not be punished the way that Flake was punished by voters in Arizona. So inside the White House right now, Andrew, what are they thinking about the prospect of a Senator Mitt Romney? Well, I think they, they know that every reporter on Capitol Hill, if Romney uh, wins and does and does end up running, is going to go to Romney every single time. You get a Trump tweet every single time. Uh, there's something controversial that happens, and then, then the, the quote's going to be right up the top of the story. I think what's interesting and what will be fascinating to watch is to see how Trump himself reacts to this. Um, I think you could see him going scorched earth, but I think you know you could also be surprised and see something, some sort of effort to court Romney, you know, at some point. And I'd be curious to see whether you think that's even possible. But, uh, you know, Trump has this sort of unpredictability, right, with things like this. Um, you, know, you could see him making him enemy number one, which I think is the most likely option. But, you know, I think over time you could see an effort to sort of appeal to Romney's pragmatic side and see if they could work together on various things. But, and, of course, Trump was highly invested in keeping Hatch in right. that seat. I mean, it was it was well known that he did not want Romney coming to the Senate. And all of this, just to remind you guys and put a bow on it one more time, in the first week of 2018, it's going to be a heck of a year. Right now, we are going to throw it over to another White House reporter, Eliana Johnson, at Politico headquarters, and she is going to talk about the Iranian protests and all of the fallout and potential implications for the region and the globe. Eliana, take it away. Thanks, Tim. So I'm here in the office with Michael Crowley. Are what are you, chief foreign affairs correspondent? I think it's senior, senior most, senior most. Senior, there's no foreign, most. foreign affairs correspondent and national security editor as of a few months oh, ago. Oh yes, as you know yes. all too Na- well. And, and national security editor. I've been doing some um, editing. Michael Crowley to talk about the protests that erupted in Iran last week. Now I think it is, or over last weekend, um, and how they've affected. President Trump's decisions, uh, upcoming decision to decertify or certify, though I don't think that will happen, um, the Iranian nuclear deal, and to uh, waive or not waive the sanctions uh, that go along with the nuclear deal. So our data point for this segment is 120, and that's the number of days between which, or I'm going to totally like botch this, but 
The interval. The, in, the at interval which. at which. Yes. See, I need a co-host here. Um, the interval at which uh, the sanctions have to be renewed. So every 120 days, the sanctions that go along with the uh, nuclear deal have to be waived every 120 days. So um, essentially, that's just our excuse to talk about everything going Great. on with Iran. So. Um, over to you, Mike, for your, your commentary. So how do you okay. think the protests are affecting the um, the administration's deliberations about this and, and the deliberations in the Senate? Yeah, so um, because it's so complicated, I might just take one beat to step back and make sure everyone, you know, fully gets what we're talking about here is the Iran nuclear deal that Barack Obama That's what we call reframing the question, forged. everybody. I, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll answer your yes. question. I'm not, I'm not dodging. Uh, in, in July of 2015, and as you noted, uh, every 120 days, the uh, so under that um, agreement, Iran limited its nuclear program, and in exchange, the United States and Europe lifted these economic sanctions that were really punishing Iran's economy. But it wasn't a permanent lift. You have the president every 120 days has to say, okay, we will continue to waive these sanctions. And this deadline is coming up for Trump uh, in the middle of this month. Uh, to make that decision. And as it happens, there is also this other interval where he repeatedly has to certify or not certify whether Iran is complying with the agreement. That deadline also happens to be coming up uh, uh, next week. So it's all coming to a head at once. But the, the substantive one, the media has focused on the certification, which is really basically an opinion. Um, the really substantive thing is the sanctions waivers. And so what we have had is as this date is approaching, uh, with everyone unsure about what the president is going to do about the nuclear deal, because as listeners will remember, in October, the president was faced with a similar crossroads. Uh, and uh, in that case, he was making a decision about whether to certify. There was a lot of attention around it. Uh, and what he did was refuse to certify, refuse to say that Iran is complying with the, the agreement, even though international inspectors say that it is, and gave a speech uh, basically sort of denouncing Iran in multiple respects and saying if uh, if Congress and our European allies don't take some action to make this deal tougher or to get tougher on Iran – I'm going to terminate the agreement, which would mean essentially unilaterally reimposing sanctions and the Iranians say that would be a violation of the agreement. People say Iran could restart its nuclear program. It could lead us down a path to war in theory. But so, he still continued to waive the sanctions. But, so he gave them time. But he continued to waive the sanctions. So what we have now is an opportunity for him, even pa- and just passively, if he does nothing, the sanctions are reimposed. So to get to your – so that's the context. And even before these protests, which are the largest Iran has seen since 2009 – uh, even before they erupted, uh, people were unsure what Trump might to do might do this month about the nuclear deal. So now, what you suddenly have is unexpectedly this popular uh, discontent around Iran, which seems to be actually unlike these protests in two thousand and nine that were an international sensation and which were kind of a political movement about political freedom and reform. Uh, this is about the economy. This is about people feeling like they've been they've kind of gotten the shaft. Uh, I've heard people suggest that this is the equivalent of like Trump. Voters in Iran, people who feel like they've been left behind, they're not in the big cities, it's more rural, it's more provincial. 
And the regime, as it always is, is being pretty tough about repressing these protests. And what you have is uh, a lot of conservatives saying this is um, an exciting moment. The United States should play a big role. And we uh, might be seeing weakness on the part of this theocratic clerical regime in Iran. And to really get to your question, and then I will stop, uh, what it has done is complicated this decision for Trump. And what uh, some people who talked to the White House who are conservatives uh, told both of us when we did some reporting on this a couple of days ago. Yes, is that, everyone should go read our story immediately. Turn off this podcast and go read our story. Uh, Just e- kidding. Easily Googled uh, and and uh, will be informative. Uh, and you will see people saying that they think there's a school of thought now that this makes Trump more likely to pull the plug on the nuclear deal because the regime looks weak. And uh, the people are out in the streets complaining about the economy. And if he was to reimpose sanctions on Iran right now, it would give a kick to the regime. It would uh, it would choke Iran's economy further. And what we're seeing is that uh, Iran is at a moment of weakness. People are already upset about their standard of living. And here's an opportunity for Trump to say, we're going to turn the screw one more twist, and that could be enough to bring down the regime. The last thing I will say is the counter argument to that that you hear from a lot of people, I'd say it's more of a sort of Democratic Obama administration alumni argument is that would be a huge mistake. You would be making the story about Trump and the United States. Blowing up the deal now would give the regime something to fulminate about, to talk about how the U.S. can't be trusted. It's this aggressor. It basically causes a big distraction. So don't do it. Final word, no one knows what the president is going to do. It's Donald Trump. And I think we're not going to know until almost the last minute. Yeah. So I I was told by a senior administration official that there are essentially two cases that the president is hearing. And one is that when you have the Iranian people protesting the regime, how can you waive sanctions, um, financial sanctions on a regime whose people are protesting that would um, hand the mullahs an enormous gift and it would be a real blow to the protesters in the streets who the administration wants to support. On the other hand, um, similar to the case that you just made, the president is also hearing the argument that if he reimposes sanctions, it would be um, that also could be uh, seen as a huge gift to the regime because it would allow the regime to um, cast itself as a, as an enormous uh, victim of the United States. It would uh, isolate the U.S. not not only from its European allies but from the rest of the world. It would throw a ton of attention back on the U.S. and make it difficult for the U.S. to argue that um, its European allies should should join up. Whereas if uh, Iran, whereas the protests could uh, make it easier for the U.S. to make the case to Europeans um, to join uh, with uh, the U.S to um, ratchet up the pressure on Iran, work with it, to um, stiffen the deal, and so on. So I think it's fair to say that those are both options that the president's national security team will present him with. I think earlier in the administration, the president was being given a recommendation by his national security team, um, and he was chafing at being pushed in a particular direction, and they've moved toward essentially presenting him with multiple options and then their own recommendation, but he knows that he He's free to um, to choose another option. So, so I'm pretty confident that he will be presented um, with both of those options. But 
not at all sure what he's likely to do. Right, right. And, you know, people know that Trump has called the Iran deal the worst deal ever and vowed to tear it up as a candidate, have been very critical of it. But his national security team thinks it's worth preserving. I don't think anybody in the administration uh, liked the way the deal was done in 2015, but their general feeling is now that the cost of tearing it up uh, really are not worth the trouble. It's not how they would have done it, but we're, we're stuck with it. And quickly, uh, one thing that I didn't get to was your question about Congress. Uh, and the Europeans. Uh, you're absolutely right that there's concern that if he were to pull the plug on the deal, it would isolate the U.S., it would make the Europeans very upset. And the uh, administration does want to keep working with the Europeans and with Congress to come up with new measures to get tough on Iran that can kind of be a supplement to the deal. And there are members of Congress who have been trying to figure out a way to do this. So as I said, Trump said in October, if the Europeans and Congress don't do something to get tougher. He's going to pull the plug. He's going to run out of patience. Uh, particularly in Congress, there's been an effort to come up with something they can show Trump, if not get actually get passed. There's not enough time to get something passed in Congress right now to say we are toughening up the deal. Uh, so give it a little more time, and it gives him political cover. But that hasn't happened yet. The talks are ongoing. The trick is how do you come up with some language? Um, that can pass, that Democrats will sign on to, and that won't be seen as a violation of the deal by the Iranians, by the Europeans, and by the Democrats who have to support it. So trying to thread that needle of giving Trump some kind of political cover, here's uh, here's some new steps we're taking that don't violate the deal uh, is really tricky. It probably will revolve around things like new sanctions uh, uh, involving human rights, uh, Iran's missile program, but it can't have anything to do with the nuclear program or Iran will cry foul and they'll have a lot of sympathy from the other parties to the deal. Okay, so a question for you. You also wrote a story about, um, well, Trump had several tweets about national security this week, also about North Korea. As Iran was not the only thing uh, he touched on. But what's your take on the significance of the president tweeting about the size of his nuclear button? Does it actually have an impact on national security? We've heard the administration argue that the press really shouldn't take the president's tweet seriously. Um, thus far, they haven't caused a huge international incident, but could that change? That's the problem. We really don't know. I think that a lot of countries, I suspect um, the Europeans, to take an example, maybe the Chinese, uh, that are sophisticated about diplomacy and have a relatively good understanding of American politics and media, realize that there's a way in which Trump's tweets might be a kind of uh, performance art that doesn't have a lot to do with the way American foreign policy is really executed and implemented. It's an obviously an important window into Trump's mind, but you know a lot, he's tweeted a lot of things that he hasn't really followed through on that haven't really been consistent with actual policy steps the U.S. has taken. I think when you are talking about North Korea, uh, it's potentially a very different story. The North Koreans are uh, fanatical. They're paranoid. They're uh, relatively backwards in their understanding of the outside world. Very few North Koreans leave the country. I believe – I don't know this for sure firsthand, but I'm pretty sure I've read in credible outlets that Kim Jong-un, uh, the North Korean leader, has never met another foreign leader, which is kind of mind-boggling. So, so the question Whoa, is – I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, 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 we need to fact check that. I know I've read it, but I don't know it independently myself. Um, e nerds, email Michael M. Crowley <laughs> at politico.com if you want to fact check him. Yeah. If you know that I'm right or wrong, let me know. 
Uh, but look, especially if he's right, he doesn't really want to hear from you if if he's wrong. (laughs) Maybe so. Um, at a minimum, I think it, it, you get the idea. This is a guy, uh, who may have some pretty twisted, uh, 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 perceptions of the outside world and may not really, uh, know how to interpret Donald Trump's tweets. Uh, uh, they don't have Twitter in North Korea for starters. So on some level, they're trying to figure out like what this medium is, I assume. But what, what is the implication of that? The implication of that is that, um, the North Koreans may not have the sort of, you know, weary resignation of the, uh, you know, the snooty, sophisticated French to say, oh, this is Mr. Trump and his Twitter handle. And they sort of shake their heads and roll their eyes. And, oh, boy, here we go again. But they, I think, maybe have learned to take it with a grain of salt. With the North Koreans, it's like, and also just the subject matter, the guy is threatening to nuke us. And um, what does that mean? I think it probably puts them on higher alert. It makes them more paranoid. And bottom line, it raises the risk of some kind of a miscalculation. The one danger here is that if the North Koreans think they're – that if they become convinced that we're coming to get them, they have an incentive to hit us first. Uh, or if there is some kind of a minor incident, there's an accident, a spy plane crashes, there's some kind of you know boats collide at sea, uh, it can escalate re- much faster if the two sides – uh, are are in a very paranoid state of ultra heightened alert, and so that is uh, the concern right now, uh, particularly with tweets like that one about Trump's uh, bigger button. I'm going to propose an alternative theory that you don't have to respond to. We can just close the segment on it. Um, is it also possible that Trump and Kim Jong Un just have such an uncanny mind meld that they they know what each other's thinking and have perfect perfect understanding of each other's intentions. Anything is possible with these two guys. <laughs> We've never seen anything like this. Maybe not since medieval times. Okay, thank you Michael for joining us. Thanks that for having me. That was great. Yeah. That was great. Our third data point today, the number is 12. 12 and 12 is the number of years that Mike Pence and Jeff Flake served together in the House of Representatives before both ran for higher office as the governor of Indiana and junior senator of Arizona, respectively. And of course, now they find themselves in very different situations. Mike Pence is the vice president of the United States, and Flake is still the junior senator of Arizona, but he has announced his retirement having watched his popularity plummet back home in Arizona in no small part due to his opposition to President Trump throughout the 2016 campaign and thereafter. And that is the subject of a new story in Politico this week written by yours truly examining not only the relationship between Pence and Flake personally, professionally, politically, but how their falling out speaks to the broader fractures in modern conservatism and republicanism. And here to talk about that with me is, again, our favorite senior politics editor, Charlie Matesian. We should flip the script here because uh, l- I want to talk to you about this story. I-, I mean, at the risk of you know kissing up too much to you. And I, I definitely no, don't please. Do. No, please. I don't want to do that. Uh, I absolutely loved that story uh, about the estrangement between uh, Pence and Flake. And I loved it because uh, it did what a lot of political stories don't do. Uh, it really humanized the predicament that Republicans faced during the, the Trump era. And we often, when we cover politics, we, we fail to acknowledge and recognize and chronicle uh, the human aspect of these relationships that have a profound ef- effect on, on on our country, and so it really humanized this predicament, and it showed the personal costs and and the wreckage and the and the collateral damage within the Republican Party as a result of Trump's rise. So, w- what 
what I think we should do is is uh, let's let's get in the weeds on this a little bit and, and explain to people because it's so for me it's, it's so frustrating to to find. Uh, that folks have no idea how the media operate. They have no idea where these stories come from. Uh, they don't trust it. You know, you see this in all the polls. So we should explain that how this story came to be, how you reported it a little bit. So, so why don't we start by saying, um, like, talk about the genesis of, of this. Where did the story come from? How did you know about this relationship between Pence and Flake? Well, ever since my time in D.C., Charlie, I've been pretty obsessively fixated on covering the conservative movement and, and conservatives in Congress because there had been previous to 2010, of course, and then it broke out into the open with the Tea Party wave that year. But there had been um, previous to the Tea Party explosion in Washington, this sort of smaller group of conservatives who were anti-establishment and who were lonely voices of dissent inside the party during the Bush years who were warning about the betrayals of conservative principle on on overreach of the federal government, on, on big spending policies, on specific uh, policy initiatives like Medicare Part D and No Child Left Behind and the bailouts eventually. So when you look back through the sort of recent annals of congressional history and you focus on who some of those conservative voices were, the two people who pretty consistently popped out were always Jeff Flake and Mike Pence. And matter of fact, I can remember some years back reporting a piece on the history of the Republican Study Committee, which of course, previous to the House Freedom Caucus forming, the Republican Study Committee for decades had been that lonely voice of dissent inside the Republican Party trying to pull the party to the right on policy and politics. So Pence had chaired that group, and it was always interesting to me when I was looking back at those different chairmanships, whether it be Jim Jordan or Tom Price, Jeb Henserling, but Mike Pence was really known as the renegade, the guy who drove the hardest against the Republican leadership, and Flake was his right-hand man. But it wasn't just a political alliance. As I write in the story, these two were extremely close, and for me— Anytime you have the opportunity to not just tell a, a political story, but a personal story that ties into the political story, it's all the better because, as you said a minute ago, for me, as a reporter, as a feature writer, you can't understand these folks oftentimes until you understand them at their most human, until you can try to unpack something really elemental and fundamental about who they are, what gets them out of bed in the morning, what they're what their fears are, what their hopes are, really what their ambitions and goals are. So for these two to have so much in common in terms of their ambitions and goals and, and ideologies, but also personally to have so much in common was really an interesting way to sort of track that wreckage you talked about of how Trump has driven these these divides in the Republican Party. Now, back when I did uh, an honest day's work and before I lived to uh, before I moved to Mount Olympus as an editor, uh, as a reporter, I remember the hardest part was where do you start on a story like this? What's the first call? You know, how do you begin your reporting? Like, so so you have this idea and uh, about the relationship. Where do you start? Who who were the first interviews you did when you were trying to uh, flesh out the story? So it's actually right. Back to where I was talking a minute ago about the Republican Study Committee. I started there. I, I tracked down a handful of staffers, uh, a handful of whom were willing to talk on the record, but most of whom were not. And uh, these were staffers who worked closely with Pence during his chairmanship and with Flake because Flake was sort of a charter member, maybe not a charter member because it was formed back in the 70s, this group, but a an integral member of the core of the Republican Study Committee during the Bush years. So talking to some of the top staffers to that organization who had all of these great 
anecdotal recollections of the battles that they waged together. These were two guys who, as Flake told me in our interview, uh, came to gain the nickname of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because they were known for sprinting down the corridors of the Capitol and bursting onto the House floor to object to a unanimous consent request from the leadership when they were trying to pass a bill sort of easily late at night with nobody there to uh, to oppose it in a way that would uh, force a, a full vote of the body of the House of Representatives. Just using that as an example of how these two guys were sort of attached at the hip and who saw eye to eye on so much during that period of Republican history – And so I started there with the Republican Study Committee because in a lot of ways that was the origin uh, as an organization that viewed its job as to be a conservative check on the excesses of the Republican leadership in the House and the excesses of the Republican administration with George W. Bush from 01 to 08. And so the principals themselves, Pence and Flake, did you talk to both of them? So the vice president's office had multiple opportunities to comment, decided that they did not want to comment. But then at the very last minute, Charlie, they changed their mind and they said that they were going to send something over. And we were waiting for it right before the magazine went to bed. And I was stunned when I received their statement. I was expecting something with some token warmth, maybe an allusion to the close personal relationship between these two men, their wives, their children, the families. Instead, the statement from the vice president's office was, quote, the vice president like the president, is eager and willing to work with any member of Congress that wants to work in the best interests of the country, unquote. And it was just remarkable for the chilliness in that statement. Yeah, it really it jumped out at me when I when I read that. It just seems so bloodless given, you know, the relationship and and the, and the time they had spent together. So let me ask you then about Flake. What I got the sense, and, and maybe I totally missed the boat here and feel free to laugh at me if I did, but I got the sense that, you know, he was really pained by this. You know, in, in reading the story, uh, and we should make clear to the, to the listeners, I did not edit that story. The story came through the magazine. So, the, so I read it like everybody else did. It struck me that he was very pensive about this. He had thought about it a lot. It, you know, had wounded him personally, uh, that he was, you know, he was sad about the way uh, things had had ultimately fallen apart between uh, himself and the vice president. No question. There there was a, a pronounced, visible sadness, just deep sadness uh, in his voice, on his face, in his body language throughout the entire interview. Uh, there were lots of times where he was talking, but sort of looking past me looking at the floor. I asked him at one point, I said, you know, does it make you sad? Just this relationship not being what it once was. And he said, yeah, it does. It does. And, and a couple of times he, he sort of uh, would stop himself and, and say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're still friends. We see each other here and there. But it was, it was very obvious. Uh, we talked at one point about uh, during the campaign, once Pence had been named Trump's running mate, uh, and of course, Flake was a vocal opponent of Trump throughout the, the primary season. And even after Pence, his close friend, was added to the ticket, Flake refused to attend the convention, which was very hurtful to Pence. And then furthermore, Flake refused to even attend any of Pence's events when Pence was in Arizona doing campaign rallies. Not the not not Trump rallies, but Pence rallies. And Flake still refused to attend. And he was telling me how the one time that Pence came, Flake asked him if instead they could just meet at the airport in Arizona so that their wives could see each other and that they could catch up very briefly. And I said, well, how did that go? And he had this very long pause and he said, oh, it was awkward. And he didn't elaborate anymore. And 
you could just see this very pained expression on his face because here he is having watched his political career come to a pretty abrupt halt by virtue of his opposition to the president and his outspoken opposition to him. But I don't think he ever could have imagined that, you know, losing your Senate seat is one thing, but to lose a very close friend because of uh, your political decisions is, is quite another. And I think maybe folks reading it could think that that's melodramatic, that it's overstated, but I think it's really hard to overstate just how close these two guys were. And as a result of that, just how hard it is on the one hand for Flake to see this and also for Pence to see this. I talked to people close to the vice president and they said that one of the real struggles for the vice president this year has been watching his one-time best friend in politics, Jeff Flake, come out and in just totally unprecedented, unrestrained language, slam the president of the United States as somebody who is basically immoral and unfit for office. And that has been really hard on Pence trying to, on the one hand, remain loyal to the president and on the other hand, not let a friendship completely fall apart, which by all accounts, it mostly has at this point. Yeah, but see, here's where I'm skeptical of, of that. The, the, you know, that part of the, this is the story, uh, part of the story that I was skeptical about that, that uh, Pence felt aggrieved. I mean, to me, it, it really showed two kinds of political personas. Um, and you got, you know these guys much better than me, but I've always thought of Flake as more of an ideologue, a purist, a, a, a dreamer of, of, in some way. And Pence is more as the practical-minded uh, politician who will do what it takes uh, to move off and understands that there are unpleasant decisions uh, that you have to make and there are compromises you have to make. Uh, you have to maybe swallow someone like uh, Donald Trump who in the past might have been distasteful for you, uh, but that is the nature of politics. And that's what it reflected to me so that the, the idea that Pence would have been personally upset that that Flake didn't embrace Trump rang a little untrue. I mean, is that the story that, that Pence wants out there? Or like, what is your vibe of that? Do you feel like Pence was really personally wounded also? Well, I can tell you this, Charlie. I spent a fair amount of time with Pence uh, during the campaign, and I was on the plane with him for about a week, a few weeks before Election Day 2016. And one of the things I talked with him and with his closest advisors quite a bit about was the hurt and the anger that he felt at the time from some of the never-Trumpers who he knew personally and who had had long-time relationships with. And he was hurt not only by their continued opposition to the ticket, but he was he felt a sense of betrayal that these folks had always trusted him, trusted his instincts politically and otherwise, and yet they did not trust that he had made a good decision by joining the ticket. They did not trust that he was seeing and interacting with and joining forces with a very different Donald Trump than the one that they saw. Pence was famous for going around and telling people throughout the campaign after joining the ticket, look, I know what you see on television. It's not what I see when I've gotten to know this guy personally behind closed doors in more private, intimate settings. So for Pence, that feeling of whatever it might be, aggrievement, betrayal, uh, he was upset that his word was not good enough for some of these anti-Trump conservatives. And I think with the Flake situation, it's that same dynamic but on steroids because of how close he was with Flake. I had multiple Pence advisors tell me in identical language, so clearly this was coming straight from the vice president, saying, look, the thing that upset Pence the most was that when he went to Flake and told him, hey – 
trust me on this. I'm vouching for this guy. Don't you don't you have enough faith in me to at least try and take my word for this? And that Pence was upset that Flake never once took his word for this. And of course, when I relayed that to Flake, he was, uh, to say the least, a little bit surprised. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. To me, it just seems ludicrous that, that he would expect everybody to just buckle under and, and trust his judgment for it. When Trump very publicly uh, in, in every every way was anathema to uh, on every on every single point to uh, social conservatives to uh you know conservatives of every stripe it's gonna be fascinating to watch it uh, unfold in an election year like 2018 as well well thank you charlie and uh thanks for being on the nerdcast today how worried should scott be how did i do i think he did pretty well uh but i have to say the sweater i've really got issues with orange my mother-in-law bought me this sweater I figured it had to be something like that or your kids. Make of that what you will. (laughs) Well, that's it for us today. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our producers, Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez, our researcher, Zach Montalero, and our illustrator, Bill Cuckman. And if you like the show and want to support the Nerdcast, please subscribe, rate us, and write a written review, especially for the new host. We'll talk to you next week.